Welcome to the SoCal Hymns Podcast. I am Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with David Finn. David Finn is the Executive Vice President of Strategic Innovation at Synergist Tech. He has been involved in leading the planning, management, and control of enterprise-wide mission-critical information technology and business processes for more than 30 years. His unique experience in risk management and control objectives of technology, including audit, security, and privacy, allows him a distinctive perspective in the design and implementation of business applications and the processes that the technology must support. David is focused on using technology as an enabler of operating efficiency and deriving business value through the optimization and control of technology. He is known for creatively engaging all types of audiences, conveying messages that even change-resistant users listen to and remember. He serves on the AHIS Advisory Board and the Editorial Advisory Board for Health Management Technology. David, thanks for being back on our show today. I love having repeat guests. It's one of those things where you get to dive into different conversations that you hadn't previously thought of before, but also you sort of know what to expect in the conversation. And you're the only person I've ever met who can make the topic of security be something that is exciting and that people are like want to hear about and want to learn more about. So to have you on the show to talk about biomedical device security and why the risk is really more than security is tremendous for us. So thank you. And share with us really on what caused you to need to write about this and really bring it in more into the mainstream for our listeners. Well, biomedical devices, uh, and thank you for having me back to talk about that, but biomedical devices uh, really became an issue for me. Uh, you, you know my history, Sarah, back when I was a, a CIO, and this is the early 2000s, and uh, biomedical engineering was was under facilities, and, and no one paid them much attention. Their stuff wasn't on the network. Uh, but we were starting to connect to the network, and and our CEO said, you know what, we need to move biomedical engineering under IT. And he did that without much warning. Uh, he sent basically an email to the enterprise. And the, the next knock on my door was the director of clinical engineering who uh, came in and told me that he had never reported that low in an organization in his life. Uh, reporting to the CIO. So we got off to a good start, as you can tell from, from that story. But what he did say to me, and he was absolutely correct, is you have a lot to learn. And uh, so with his help, I spent the next several months going to all our uh, areas of biomedical engineering, spent time with the, with the biomets on the floor servicing devices, and it, it was kind of stunning to me. And the, the trigger event when I went, we have got to bring IT and biomed together, not just under one chain of command, but they've got to work together, was I was in our dialysis center watching a biomedical engineer uh, prep a, a, a device that was about to be go about to go be hooked up to a child having uh, life-saving dialysis. And he had serviced it and cleaned it, and I learned more about water than I would ever want to know that day. Uh, but uh, one of the last things he did was pull a jump drive out of his uh, lab coat and stick it in, and, and he must have seen the color drain from my face. And he said, well, don't, you know, don't worry about that. Uh, it's, it's not infected or anything. It came from the device manufacturer. 
And, and I said, I'm not sure it matters where it came from. We need to scan that before you upgrade machines. And, and that's when it all started. And we changed the process both from a, from a biomedical side, from an IT side. Uh, they are not your, uh, I'm, like to, I'm fond of saying they're not your father's connected devices. Uh, they, they have a lot more risks. They require a lot more attention and care. And the technical security, while it's important, like any network-connected device, uh, the real risk around medical devices is the quality of care, patient safety, and clinical operations. And, and most, most PCs or laptops don't have that kind of impact uh, as a medical device can. You know, everyone's talking about medical device security now in, in healthcare IT. You've recently written an article for Healthcare Analytics News. It was a primary topic during the first policy summit for CHIME in Washington, D.C., uh, back in the fall of 2018. So is it really that big of a deal that it is such a topic now? And, and why suddenly is it so important from everybody from the FDA to individual providers? Uh, that's a great question, and and we talk about suddenly, and then healthcare suddenly is usually somewhere between five and ten years. And it was about four or five years ago the FDA started uh, publishing more guidance. Uh, people were becoming aware of the issue, uh, but there there wasn't much being done about it. People were talking about it, which is the start. And uh, in in 2017 the uh, Health and Human Services Cybersecurity Industry Task Force uh, released their report. It was compelled by Congress through the CISA Act of 2015. And, and one of the imperatives in that document was uh, the number two imperative was focused on medical devices. And I think that was really when people started doing things. That that report drove the device makers closer to the industry, to the providers, uh, and, and there was real discussion about security. And since then, the FDA has stepped up their activities, and, and in the provider space, we're actually hearing people talking about doing things. The, the problem is most organizations really aren't set up to uh, address that issue. There's 35 years or, or more of history where where clinical engineering was was really focused on maintenance and and mean time between failure and and that kind of thing. And then as we started connecting them to the network, we had the network issues, and then we started integrating that data. Uh, with EMRs, with other clinical systems, and we're seeing it in terms of, of analytics analysis now. So they're really becoming critical. They're not kind of this strange outlier that, that the clinical engineers use and the doctors and the nurses read. They're really integral to care. And, and the medical devices, uh, like most of the care systems in our organization are moving beyond the bedside and outside the walls of our facility. So people are, are feeding this biomedical data from implantable devices, from wearable devices remotely from wherever they are. And what we always have to remember is if you can connect to something, then 
something can connect back to you. And that's the part we need to start getting a handle on. Yeah, you think about medical devices can number in the tens of thousands for a relatively medium-sized health organization. In the recent class report that was teamed up with Chime, they interviewed about 181, I think it was, different uh, healthcare systems and professionals. And one system has like eight hospitals and they have 30,000 medical devices on their network. When you think about securing these devices, what makes biomedical device security so much more difficult than a traditional endpoint? That's a great question. And and frankly, it starts with the most basic component of our traditional uh, approach to security, and that is inventory. That is understanding what you have, where it is, what it's doing on the network and who it's talking to. And this is really the first hurdle most providers struggle with. They go in, uh, you ask how many devices, you ask where they are, you ask what they're doing and what kinds of devices. And almost no provider can, can provide you an accurate inventory of their devices. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The devices weren't originally on the network. We've started to network them. So the processes weren't updated the same way we we changed the way we deploy PCs, for example. So clinical engineering just found an open port and would plug it in. Or even worse, we've got wireless and they're connecting up to the wireless. Uh, additionally, uh, these devices come off and on the network. So they may be using a, a bedside sonogram in, in pediatrics one day, and two days later that device is uh, 15 floors and another wing away on an adult patient who's in for another problem. And those devices are constantly in transit uh, in terms of, of use around the hospital. And then they have to be pulled for maintenance, regular preventive maintenance according to manufacturers of the hospital's schedules for PM. And we don't traditionally do that with our desktops or, or servers or other more traditional devices. So it is a little more complicated. In fact, I remember uh, one of the first early days in, in the hospital, I was walking through the hospital, wasn't even in IT at that point, and I heard an overhead page for a bed. And I'm, I, I looked at one of the nurses on the floor and I said, why are they paging a bed? Uh, first of all, it is not going to respond to the page. And, and second of all, how does a bed get lost? And they explained to me that it was the annual inventory for the biomedical devices and the beds were uh, biomedical devices. They were treated as clinical assets, uh, but a bed got moved somehow and it wasn't in the room it was supposed to be in and they were trying to hunt the bed down. And if you were on the floor, you knew when a bed got paged, you went and checked if there was a bed where there wasn't one before or one where there wasn't supposed to be one. And that's how they track down the inventory. And to your point, if you have 30,000 devices, you can't track them down by calling overhead pages. You have to know where they are. Uh, and particularly with, with cyber issues, you have to know where they are if there's an issue with them. So uh, biomedical devices can be very complicated just in terms of inventorying and identifying them, which is really the first step to, to security. 
Is that even an IT security issue? I mean, if we're going to have security be everybody's responsibility in an organization, you've got clinical engineering and biomedical engineering handling essentially the, the maintenance of these devices. And you think about the advent of RTLS not really being as expensive as it used to be. Do you add on methodologies and the ability for these departments to manage, track, and keep their systems safe? Or does it truly have to be a partnership with IT? I think given where we are uh, in this day and age, it has to be a partnership. We've seen this great convergence of, of medical technology and information technology over many years. And it isn't just in, in clinical engineering per se. Uh, we've seen uh, the medical technology evolve from this patient safety and compliance and repair uh, into a networked uh, architecture across the organization, which has security implications. And the upside of that is if we're really tracking that on the network, we can better track utilization. Uh, I labored under the assumption for some time that uh, the uh, maintenance schedules, for example, that, that device makers or hospitals publish for their devices were based on uh, empirical studies of how long it took for a device to start having problems and how many hours of use. And I have since been educated that those are kind of a shot in the dark. But if you're monitoring something over the network, you can actually tell when it's on and when it's being used. And it isn't just the, the medical technology, the historical medical technology I'm talking about, but even information technology. When I started uh, the systems were, you know, business-based. They were focused on finance and billing and, and ADT. But now, again, everything is networked. Everything is connected. You've got the security issues, the privacy issues. And all those systems want to integrate with clinical systems, whether they be your EMR or whether they be your MRI. So we've got that that driver on, on the traditional IT side. And even in the telecommunications area, we're seeing not only telephones and paging and, and telemedicine, the beginning of telemedicine, but we're seeing more and more remote monitoring and personal devices like Fitbits that people want to use to feed into their chart or into their physician who can then elect to put them in the chart or not. And, and so what the great, uh, the great unifier there is, unfortunately, the network. And everything that connects to the network, as, as I mentioned, can be co connected for good or someone can connect to it for evil. So I think it's going to take uh, everyone in this, uh, in this complex arrangement. And Biomed is even more a system of systems than, than anything else in the hospital because if it's an MRI, facilities is probably involved in locating it. You certainly have clinical engineering involved. It's on the network, so you have IT. Uh, a lot of times these newer devices have browsers, uh, and, and I've seen uh, a rad tech actually checking their email on an MRI device. And so that gets into IT and, and security and, and software versioning. So it's going to take all of us. And, of course, it starts with the device maker who has to build devices which are secure and can continue to be secured over time once they're deployed. So a, a lot of uh, a lot of interactivity, a lot of teamwork is going to be required. Recently, there's been 
best practices sharing of when you partner with a medical device company, asking them to deliver things like a software bill of goods, a regular security scanning and patching schedule that can be followed, um, talking about the different security rules and regulations within the four walls of a health system. How amenable do you believe that these medical device manufacturers are to taking on some of that responsibility and not being able to just turf it over to, say, FDA rules that are out there today? Yeah, and that, that has been the history. Blame it. Blame it on the FDA. And and I think enough of these myths have been busted that, that you can secure devices. You, you can make changes uh, to the device. You can add antivirus if the device will support it. Uh, but uh, again, it's going to take everyone. And I'm seeing most of the big device makers starting to get on board with with security being built in. Some of them have appointed not only their internal security officers, but have named security officers for the customer-facing devices, uh, the, the equipment that's bought. And so I think we're beginning to see that. Unfortunately, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of device makers out there and they, they don't all have the wherewithal to fix everything very quickly. And again, this gets back to if it goes on the network, there may be non-traditional ways of, of protecting that device. It might not require uh, patching it or upgrading the software on it. You may be able to move it within the network. You may be able to change what it's talking to or the way it's communicating with other devices to kind of segregate it. Uh, VLANs have been been the big push, but even VLANs uh, can, can be tricky if you start to isolate machines, and we've already talked about the fact that machines move around. So uh, I think we are seeing the big device makers step up. Some of the smaller device makers are having uh, a more of a struggle in making those adjustments. And some are even having uh, issues understanding why security and, and even more privacy is an issue. And, and privacy on a lot of these devices where they store information is, is also an issue on top of the security piece. So the Health and Human Services OIG recently released a report citing some issues and concerns around the FDA's need to improve post-market medical device security. What are your thoughts about their findings? <laughs> that that has been the topic of much discussion and 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 I have a couple thoughts about that. Uh, we are looking at an area that has uh, for all practical purposes been completely neglected from a security and privacy perspective for about 30 years. And and this push really came about uh, in maybe 2014, 15, it, it got some momentum in 2017 with the HHS task force report. But w- we can't move an industry that that has been uh, has, has not even seen the ship coming, let alone been on board uh, with a problem that's been going on for for three decades or better in in four or five years. It's it's going to take a long time to turn this ship. We need to be aware. We need to keep pushing. And that kind of gets me to the second point, which is the role of inspector generals and auditors. Their mission is to keep us focused on what we need to do. So the OIG was absolutely right. 
There needs to be more done. We need to continue to move faster. Uh, and even in the FDA response to those OIG findings, we discovered that, that there had been work done, and some of that work was in process. Some of it hadn't been released by the time the field work uh, of the Office of Inspector General was complete, but before the release of the report. So we, we need our third parties to keep pushing on us. The FDA needs to keep working on it. But we need to remember that this is, again, it's a system of systems. The FDA can't do it alone. They can issue guidance, they can issue regulations, but we're talking about changing a whole industry from the device maker all the way through to the provider because you can get, and we see this in other areas, you can get a very safe piece of equipment or a very securely written piece of software. And if you don't deploy it appropriately, if you don't train your people, if your processes don't support the security and privacy that was built in, it, it's all for naught. So it, it's not going to be easy. It's going to take all of us. I applaud the FDA for their work, but we need to keep pushing. And, and in that sense, the, the, the audit was correct. And we need to, to redouble our efforts with all the players to keep that progress in motion. There are some providers who are have the ability really to be more advanced than others. They they're able to negotiate the contracts or the terms with their provider medical device providers. They can put in a VLAN, they can put in a firewall, they can put in a patching methodology, they can create asset management and inventory systems. Is that everything that they can do? Or what else should providers be doing to get in front of securing and managing devices on their network? You know, in that sense, it, it really isn't that much different from the traditional approach to security. Well, one of the issues that we see is, is for so long we've been focused on, on HIPAA as a privacy and security rule and, and checking the boxes and saying we're doing those things. But what we've learned over time is, is checking boxes and being compliant, well, it is important doesn't really secure the organization. And so some of the shortcuts we took around devices because it was easier to put anti-malware on them and it's easier to do active scans and stop bad stuff that's going on, we're gonna have to really uh, do those things around the medical devices. For instance, we, we still see organizations that, that wanna scan the medical devices, I figure out what's out there, but they're doing active scans and they're knocking medical devices off the network. And, and hopefully that doesn't create a problem. But if you knock off an anesthesia machine that's uh, being used to perform a surgery, you have a different kind of problem than shutting down uh, the administrative assistance uh, desktop computer. So you can't use active scanning. You have to have a different approach to it and you have to understand those flows. You have to understand clinical processes. You have to take a business approach to the clinical operations in order to identify and then start securing and patching these devices. So again, it starts with understanding what you're buying, what's on it, including language in those contracts. 
around security, around updating for security and privacy. And then as they're deployed, understanding where they're deployed, identifying them, mapping their communications as they go on the network and having baselines. And and that's that's we've taken some shortcuts because other devices are easier to protect or isolate. And we're going to have to get back and, and do some of the nitty gritty work around these medical devices. Some of our listeners aren't going to necessarily understand why the medical device space is really such a area of concern and need for enhanced security. You pointed out, if you can connect to it, it can connect to you without, you know, having a doomsday prophecy upon us. If you put back your CIO shoes and you're in a hospital system and you've got, you know, 30,000 medical devices connected, what's that thing that's going to worry you the most about what could happen to your patients? That is a great question. And for many years, this has been the biomedical device attack has been academic. Uh, researchers, Billy Rios uh, hacked the the the, the uh, glucometer and and the insulin pump and 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 that was in a research setting. And then we had Homeland, the episode where the vice president was was assassinated through an attack on his. Uh, pacemaker. And and so, you know, we, we got hyper alert about that and then realized that that was not real. It was researchers and it was television. Uh, but in the last two years, we've actually seen attacks on medical devices. And, and what we saw before that was attacks through medical devices, which are bad enough. But there was a telemetry server once an organization came under attack. Uh, they weren't going for biomedical devices, but the, the telemetry server was on the path through the network to the payload they were going after. And they took the whole telemetry system offline. Not a good thing to have happen. That's when people started waking up. Uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, we had... Uh, two patients in Germany who went to Shodan in their, uh, well, they were hospitalized. They were both on syringe pumps, got the, the, the administrative passwords, which had not, the default passwords, which had not been changed when those syringe pumps were deployed. And they were being treated for for an auto accident and became addicted to morphine while they were in the hospital. They got over their wounds and then had to be weaned off morphine. So there's implications like that. And this summer, this was a, a great story. I had gone to a customer to talk about biomedical device issues and their CTO looked at me and said, this, this never really happens though. I understand what you're saying, but it isn't real. Two days before a surgical center in Russia had been hacked uh, and every you know, they didn't take the whole organization down. They just took down the medical devices in the OR suite. And they were performing a, a neurosurgery, a brain surgery on a 13-year-old girl. And the surgeon lost all visibility. All the monitors for that brain surgery went out. So he didn't have uh, blood pressure. He didn't have respiration. He was literally flying blind. It had a happy ending. But these are some of the scenarios that have actually happened. These are not in research labs. These are not uh, white hat hackers trying to prove a point. These aren't television episodes uh, 
you know, where, where a hospital gets ransomed or the vice president is taken out uh, through, through his pacemaker. These are starting to really happen. And as the bad guys understand how easy it is to get onto the network or through these devices, I believe we're going to see more of it. This is a problem that we have to address now. Is it reasonable for a health system to add this to their desktop exercises when they think about BCDR and continuity and planning for emergencies? Is a breach of a medical device object something that we should add to our mix of scenarios? Absolutely. Uh, a biomedical device outage or shutdown really should be built into your IR exercises. Uh, we have seen many times hospitals go on drive-by when catheterization, heart catheterizations labs were shut down, or we've seen issues uh, in care and staffing when uh, medication cabinets on the floor were shut down. And, and so it is a real problem when it happens. And, and because of that, uh, and because it's much more likely to happen than the chemical spill or the plane crash, it really should be built into the IR exercises as part of, of any cyber event. Because if you get ransomed, we saw with, with Petya and not Petya, only because the code was written so badly, it didn't have a, a bigger impact. But we did see medical devices taken out. Uh, with with Petya and not Petya and wanna cry. So it is something we need to be aware of. It is something we need to start addressing. And and the best way to, to deal with an event is to be prepared for it. So absolutely, it should be part of your IR practice. David, as consumers and patients, do we need to add this to the list of questions that we ask our providers in terms of how secure your medical device is? Is it something we really need to be worried about as patients? Yeah. Worry, worry can escape, span a, a big range there. It is something people need to be aware of. And that goes back to one of the things I've been saying for a long time now, and that is all of us as consumers, as patients, as individuals who use devices and connect to the Internet for, for lots of good reasons, uh, we need to be aware that there's people connecting it for not good reasons. And if we can connect to them, they are able to connect to us. So I, I was recently at a facility where they had actually worked out an arrangement with Fitbit. All their cardiology patients had Fitbits uh, issued to them when they, they checked in. And they had, they had uh, a, a special arrangement with Fitbit. It was a special uh, device designed for this use. And so there was some security and privacy built in. But I think a lot of people don't think about those impacts. They just go buy one. So about a year ago, we saw uh, how, how the bad guys watching Fitbits and, and geospatially mapping them were able to identify uh, military bases uh, or see the, the traffic flows around the Pentagon. And this is just uh, Fitbit users who are in the military and, and they watch these patterns. And, and the Pentagon, for example, is a clean space. You're not allowed to believe to, to bring in those kinds of devices. But you could see the bikes parked or the cars parked all around the building with the Fitbit still on and, and still being tracked by, uh, by less than uh, 
good people, well-intended people, shall we say. And, and those are the things we don't think about. And this is what we're, we really, as a society, as individuals, and certainly as patients need to think about how our data or our, how our connectivity can be used, not only to help us, but how it could be used against us if we're not careful. David, always love sharing ideas and concerns with you because you bring to light the things that might happen, but really you also bring it home and tell us about the things we need to be thinking about today to make a difference. So our listeners are going to want to ask you more questions or reach out to you. And in your role as EVP of Strategic Innovation for Synergistic, you are widely available, but what's the best way for them to find you? The best way to find me is probably my email, which is david.finn at synergistic, C-Y-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-E-K.com. And, and I welcome all comers, all, all a good thing to, uh, to, for questions. I am happy to field them or pass them on to the right experts. Excellent. Thanks again for your time. Look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. Special thanks to Esteban Parano, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us to produce our podcast series.